17th century English preacher and author Thomas Watson said, to serve God, to love God, to enjoy God is the sweetest freedom in the world, which, uh, which is absolutely true. And yet, do you know there's only one way that you can actually experience that kind of freedom? It's in Christ alone. There's no other way to ever truly be free in this life, free from fear, free from sin, free from doubt, free from everything that imprisons you, that holds you back, that keeps you from living, the, uh, living up to the potential that he embedded in your DNA when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. There's no other way to truly live free than to live in Christ, which is why the Apostle Paul said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1, he sets you free so that there's no longer anything that can keep you from becoming exactly who you were created to become. So according to Paul, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, which means you are free from the grip of fear that condemnation brings. You're also dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11, which means you are free from the shackles of sin. And you have eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. So you're free to pursue whatever God calls you to in this life because your future is secure in the next. You're getting the picture. When you are in Christ Jesus, every single thing in this world that exists to enslave you and keep you from becoming all that God created you to be, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from every single bit of it. Which is, why, uh, which is why Christians never struggle with fear or sin or a lack of confidence in doing what God has called us to do. Uh-oh. Houston, we have a problem. Right? If, if in Christ we've truly been set free from everything that exists on this earth to hold us back from being everything we were designed and created to be, then why do we still struggle with the weight of fear and sin and doubt? Well, it isn't because he hasn't held up his end of the bargain, right? No, every single thing that Jesus said he would accomplish on this earth, he accomplished, including a permanent victory over sin, death, and every power of hell that conspires to imprison us. So why do we struggle with the very things Jesus set us free from? Right? Why do we sometimes still live as if we're in bondage to everything He already conquered? It's not because He is holding us back. You see, whether it's, whether it's hate, a fear, greed, idolatry, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, a lack of faith or trust or peace or joy, I mean, pick your poison, right? Whatever it is that is holding you back today from the life you know you could be and should be living, none of it, not one shred of what is holding you back is His doing. You see, the hard truth is we live in prisons that we build around ourselves. We choose Sometimes daily we choose to live in bondage to things He set us free from the moment our lives were hidden in Christ. We allow ourselves to be subjugated by fear and sin and doubt to the point that we live as if Jesus never set us free even though every single thing that is holding you back today was nailed to a Roman cross and put to death once and for all 2,000 years ago. 
Right? Because although Jesus rose from the dead, the power of fear and sin and doubt to rule over your life, those things did not rise with them. Those are things we willingly resurrect and keep on life support by our own doing. So how then, how do we live as free men? How do we live as the free men and women that we are? How do we take hold of what already belongs to us and forsake everything else that gets in the way of us living the way He created us to? Well, that is exactly what we're going to find out today as we continue our story, working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, where the various actors in this chapter of the book are grappling with what to do with the freedom they've been given. And it turns out to be a master class on the keys to finding freedom from the things we allow to imprison us in this life. So let's jump back in where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 13 and see how finding freedom from all the things that are holding you back, how that will, uh, listen, it will change your entire perspective and approach to this life, right? And consequently also what you're able to accomplish and who you become all along the way. So we'll begin uh, 1 Samuel 13 with the first seven verses. Saul lived for one year and then became king. When he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. The people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So the story begins with Saul lived for one year and then became king, which is probably a reference to his spiritual conversion back in chapter 10, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul and he became another man. And then his first administrative act as king is to set up a standing army, because at this point what Israel had was more akin to a militia where Men were called up uh, to prepare for battle only in times of national emergency. And, and it is significant to note here that up to now, Israel was also largely at peace with the Philistines because they had allowed themselves to be subjugated by them, as we'll see as the story continues. In other words, uh, the Israelites were subservient by their own choice to their enemy. And so as long as the Israelites were kept under the control of the Philistines, there was no reason for the Philistines to attack them, and as a result, God's people were at peace. But they were not free, because they were not willing to fight for what had already been given to them by God. They were not willing to fight for their freedom. That is, until Jonathan, Saul's son, decided it was time to take back what was rightfully theirs. So he attacks a garrison of Philistines at their fortress at Geba, which, by the way, has been uncovered by archaeologists 
who have noted that it was clearly destroyed in battle and then later rebuilt by Saul. And then straight away after Jonathan's success at Geba, Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. This is a call to war. And in response, the Philistines amassed their armies, 30,000 chariots, right, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude because now the Israelites are a threat. <clears throat> and so Saul gathers his troops for war. And while his army is trembling in fear, the people run and hide in caves and holes and wells and even tombs because they're terrified of what the Philistines might do to them, which we'll come back to later. But you understand, this was a seminal moment for the people of God who were about to learn the hard way that there's no freedom without a fight. Okay, look, God gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites all the way back under the command of Joshua where God was crystal clear about the fact that the land was theirs. He'd given it to them and yet in the same breath he told them to be strong and courageous. Now why if you've already given it to them why do they need to be strong and courageous? It's because even though the land now belonged to the Israelites, they still had to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Everyone who would ever try to keep them from possessing all that God had already given them. In other words, God was saying to his people, this land is now yours, but you're still going to have to fight for it. Even though I've already given it to you, you still have to fight to actually possess what is yours? And although they started off doing what he told them to do in order to possess the land, they stopped short of driving out all of the inhabitants. Why? Because they got tired of the fight. They got weary. They got tired of the fight to the point they were willing to give up uh, freely possessing all the land that belonged to them in order to be at peace with their enemies. And so they sacrificed their freedom in order to avoid a fight. And I'm telling you, God's people have been doing the very same thing ever since. The moment you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were set free. Free from fear. Free from sin. Free from doubt. Free from all the things the enemy tries to leverage in your life to keep you from becoming precisely what God created you to become. You have been set free from all of it. But listen, you still have to fight for what is yours. Why do you think the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, said to Christians, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Why did he say to Christians, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6, 11. Why did he say to Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. He said those things to Christians because we are at war. The moment you were born, the enemy declared war on your soul. And even though Jesus secured your freedom once and for all through his atoning death and resurrection, you make no mistake about it. You can still willingly choose to subject yourself to fear and sin and doubt. Not because Jesus didn't provide freedom for you from all of that, but because you're not willing to fight for what is already yours. 
Why do we do that? It's because we get tired of the fight. We get tired of the fight to the point we'd rather be at peace with the enemy than to have to fight for the freedom that Christ has already given us. And as a result, listen, as a result, this world is full of Christians who live their lives racked with fear and sin and doubt because we're more afraid of what the enemy might do to us then we are hungry for what God wants to do through us if we would just fight for what He's already given us. So look, if you feel like you're continually gripped with fear or shackled by sin or overcome with doubt, the first thing you need to understand is if you are in Christ, He has already set you free from every fear, every sin, and every doubt the enemy will ever try to assault you with. But if you're going to walk in that freedom every day of your life, then you're going to have to fight for it. Because the moment you begin, listen, the moment you begin to take possession of what is rightfully yours, that is the moment the enemy is going to come at you with everything he's got. The Israelites had a grand total of 3,000 soldiers. And the moment they began to take back what was theirs from the enemy, the Philistines showed up with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore. The moment you take the fight to the enemy, he's going to come at you with everything he's got. And that's when the fight gets real, real fast. Which means you have a decision to make. What is more important to you? Peace with the enemy. Or freedom from everything he tries to control you with. And to be sure, it's one or the other. Right? Because you cannot have both. If you, if you want to walk in all the freedom Christ has already provided for you, then you're going to have to fight for it. The good news is, you are never alone in that fight. After telling Joshua he is going to have to be strong and courageous, the very next words from God were, Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. Author and speaker Christine Kane said, being set free and walking in freedom are not the same. The first was done for us by Jesus, but the second we must choose to do ourselves in His strength and by His grace. Let's keep reading. Verse 8 through the half, first half of 15. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered uh, at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. 
So Saul uh, waits at Gilgal for seven days for Samuel to arrive, as instructed by Samuel, to offer the sacrifices that preceded battle, that would make atonement for the sins of the soldiers before they went into war, and also it was an outward demonstration of Israel's dependence upon the Lord, particularly before uh, fighting the enemy. The only problem is uh, Samuel doesn't show up when he said he would which is a problem because Samuel's army is rapidly deserting him as the Philistine army rapidly grows. And so Saul decides to do something he's absolutely not qualified to do. He decides to take matters into his own hands, literally, and make the sacrifices himself, which he knew good and well were reserved for the priest only, according to Numbers 18.7. And then when Samuel does show up, Saul went out to meet him, and greet him. And if you read that in the ancient Hebrew, it says that Saul went out to bless Samuel as the priest blesses the people. So whether Saul realizes it or not, he's challenging Samuel's spiritual authority and ultimately that of the Lord by acting as the high priest, by uh, performing the sacrifices and going out to bless the prophet, which was not Saul's place. So Saul disobeys Samuel. He disregards the word of the Lord. He dishonors the prophet of God and he assumes the role of priest of God. And to make matters worse, when confronted by Samuel about his sin, instead of repentance, Samuel is met with a litany of excuses as Saul blames the people. Listen, uh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and then he blames Samuel, and, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and then he blames the enemy, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. That's why I did it, Samuel. You see, it wasn't my fault. And in that one fatal decision, the refusal to accept responsibility for his own sin and repent of it, Saul loses the freedom to become all that he could have become. As Samuel explains, you have done foolishly. Again, if you read that in the Hebrew, it's much stronger than what we read in the English. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. You see, despite all the giftings, physically, militarily, all of the opportunities and resources he'd been given by God, despite being hand-chosen for this role, Saul's full potential as king would ultimately not be realized. And although he tried to blame other people for leaving him, right? Uh, I've been hurt by other people. Sounds familiar. I've tried that one. And despite blaming his spiritual leader for not coming through for him, right? I've been hurt by the church, and I've tried that one too. And despite blaming the enemy for coming after him, the, the devil made me do it. I'll just tell you, that one doesn't work either. Despite all the excuses that Saul could muster, Samuel makes it very clear to Saul, you have no one to blame but yourself. You see, we live in the prisons we build around ourselves and yet there's no freedom outside of God's will. At the same time, there's only one person who's responsible for you remaining in God's will. Yeah, and that person is you. And so if you're not living in the very center of God's will for your life today, listen, it's not other people's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not the enemy's fault. And it is certainly not God's fault. There's no circumstance, person, or power on this planet or in hell below who can keep you outside of God's will. The devil cannot stop you and God won't stop you from living the life you were meant to live. So what is it? What, what, what keeps us outside of God's will? The answer is sin. 
which is always 100% of the time a choice that we make. In fact, one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied passages of Scripture in all of the Bible is 1 Corinthians 10.13, where the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And people interpret this passage all the time to mean God will never give you more in this life than you can handle, which is not even close to what Paul is actually teaching here. The fact is, we are most certainly given far more than we can handle at times in our lives. I guarantee it. Just ask a parent who's lost a child or anyone who's lost a spouse or endured some other great tragedy. We are absolutely at times in this life given far more than we are able to handle. You understand? That's why you need Jesus. Because there's nothing in this life that He can't handle. So we look to Him, not to ourselves, at those times in our lives when we're facing much more than we're able to handle on our own. Okay, What Paul is saying here is that because God is faithful, we will never be so tempted in this life where our only option in response to that temptation is to sin. Because He always provides a way of escape. He says, without us having to sin. That's why he starts out the passage with no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men because we are all tempted to sin. But no matter how strong the temptation is to sin, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Your ability to what? To not sin. And so with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it because sin is always a choice. We are never forced to sin. In fact, we have power over sin. Again, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace it's the same message God has been giving his people since the dawn of time look at what he says to Cain all the way back in Genesis 4 7 sin is crouching at the door its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it and that phrase uh, its desire is contrary to you. In the ancient Hebrew, it's the word mashal. It means to rule. In other words, God says to Cain, listen, sin is always there. It is crouching at the door. It is waiting for you. And its desire is to rule over you. But you must rule over it. You understand, he wouldn't have said that to Cain or to us if we weren't able to rule over sin in our own lives. Okay, sin is always a choice that we make and it keeps us outside of God's will. And look, as much as we think that, that other things in our lives can somehow provide the freedom that we all long for as long as your life is outside of God's will, you will never experience the freedom He's provided for you. Saul certainly tried. He was physically impressive. 
head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. He was gifted with great leadership ability, particularly in military strategy. He held the highest position of authority and power among the people. He had the best of everything, every resource available to him, and he was highly religious. He didn't dare go into battle without performing the religious ceremonies that had to be performed, and yet despite all of that, Saul was living outside of God's will for his life because none of that could overcome his own sin and therefore provide the freedom he desired. Okay, look, I don't care who you are. Physical ability, talent, physical beauty will not produce freedom in your life. Position and power will not produce freedom in your life. An abundance of resources, all the money in the world will not produce one ounce of freedom in your life. And even the best religious behavior will not produce freedom in your life. So what does? Where does real freedom come from? Well, Jesus was pretty clear about that. He said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32, the truth will set you free. Great. What is the truth? Jesus was pretty clear about that too. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14, 6. See, it doesn't matter how talented or fantastic you are physically, how successful you become, how much money you make, or how religious you are, until you bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in humble repentance for the sin in your life, you will never have true freedom in your life. Sin is a choice, and so is repentance. And listen, the moment, the moment you repent of sin, that's the moment your life is in the center of God's will as your relationship with Christ is renewed. Saul's own reign and uh, family dynasty and kingship over Israel could have been continued. Samuel said as much, but he chose to blame others for his sin instead of choosing repentance. Chinese pastor, author, and martyr Watchman Nee once said, It is a fact that the Lord Jesus has already died for you. It is also a fact that you have already died with the Lord Jesus. If you do not believe in your death with Christ, you will not be able to receive the effectiveness of death with Him, freedom from sin. Okay? In His death and resurrection, you have been made new and you have been set free. We have to start living like it. Let's finish the story for today from the second half of verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan and his, uh, then Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon and another company turned toward the border that looks down the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. 
and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So on the eve of battle, by the time Saul had taken up his position in the hill country near Geba, where Jonathan and his men were stationed, most of Saul's army had abandoned him from 3,000 soldiers down to 600 and not a sword or spear among them, save uh, Jonathan and Saul each had one. And at this point, uh, the Israelites were largely still living in the Bronze Age while the Philistines were seafaring people. They were from the uh, Aegean region of the Mediterranean, which meant they had access to the latest developments in iron from the Hittites after the monopoly was broken in the 12th century BC, and, uh, and also from other technologically sophisticated cultures to the West as well, especially though to the Greeks. So the Philistines were continually importing weapons and weapon-making knowledge from those advanced cultures. In fact, for several decades, archaeologists unearthed uh, staggering numbers of iron artifacts, especially weapons, dating from the period of the, the height of the Philistines' power. And so, so here they stand, 600 Israelites without proper weapons, facing 30,000 enemy chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore with an abundance of technology, uh, technologically advanced weapons, and they're now on the move. And as you would expect, the Israelites were paralyzed with fear. Verse 7 says they followed Saul with trembling as the Philistines are now closing in. The only thing slowing their progress being a deep ravine that acted as a barrier between the Israelites and the Philistines who were on the other side of the valley at Michmash. And so the Philistine uh, military leaders send out bands of raiders in three directions, northwards toward Ophrah, westwards toward Beth Horon in their own territory, and southeastwards toward Zeboam near the Dead Sea, which was a route that followed uh, the, those steep and dangerous ravines through the hills on their way to Saul and Jonathan and what was left of their army. This was a terrifying scene that left the Israelite soldiers locked in a prison of fear as there was seemingly little they could do to stop the advance of their enemy. I'm certain if you had asked them how they felt in that moment, I don't believe one single soldier would have said, I feel free. No, because there's no freedom in fear which is why the enemy weaponizes fear against us as often as possible, because it paralyzes us. It keeps us out of the fight. And we talked about one aspect of fear a couple weeks ago, the fact that all fear is ultimately about loss. So if you think about whatever it is you fear and you, you follow that fear to its logical conclusion, it's always about loss, loss of health, uh, loss of a relationship, loss of status, loss of authority, loss of acceptance, loss of position, right, loss of money or material things, loss of freedom, whatever it is that you want to hold on to, fear is always related to losing something, which is why the Apostle John said, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, 1 John 4.18. It's the ancient Greek word kalasis, which can also be translated as penalty, meaning something we stand to lose. But there's another aspect of fear that shows up here in our story that is equally important to understand because fear is not just about loss. It's also typically about the future. Right? It's not just what we fear losing. It's what we fear losing in the future, even in the immediate future. So for instance, uh, the Israelites standing there on the top of that hill on the eve of battle were racked with fear. But listen, they weren't 
racked with fear because they were afraid of standing there on the top of that hill. Right? No, their fear was rooted, was not rooted in the, in the present. Their fear was rooted in the future, their immediate future, what they believed was going to happen to them as the Philistines were approaching. You understand, no matter what actually happens in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week, where God goes before his people and they secure an impossible victory in spite of the overwhelming odds against them. But none of that mattered when they were standing there on the top of that hill before the battle ever even started, because all they could think about is what might happen. That's how fear works. It takes our focus off of what God is doing in the here and now, and it puts it on something that hasn't happened yet. Because that's the only way the enemy can manipulate us, by getting us to worry about things that haven't actually happened, things that may never happen. And look, it doesn't matter to the enemy if what we fear ever actually happens to us or not. Because as long as we're afraid of something that he can convince us might happen, then we are rendered ineffective before the battle ever starts. So look, uh, you want to be free from the fear that is plaguing your life today? Stop focusing on what might happen in the future, even the immediate future, and start focusing on what God wants to do in your life right now. You let Him worry about tomorrow. That's His part. Your part is to seek Him today. You know why? Because today is the only time God will ever reveal himself to you. You with me? He doesn't reveal himself to you tomorrow. Because tomorrow hasn't come yet. And once it does, guess what? It's not tomorrow anymore. It's today. King David understood this. That's why he didn't say, tomorrow is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. No, he said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's be glad in today. Psalm 118, 24, right here, right now, because David understood that today is always the day God reveals himself to you. Today is the day his hand is at work in your life. Today is the day Jesus is interceding for you. Today is the day he fights alongside you. Today is the day he heals your diseases. Today is the the day he defeats your enemies. Today is the day he gives you what you need. Today is the day he's speaking into your life. Today is the day he's protecting you from your enemies. Today is the day you need him the most. And if you will let him, I'm telling you, today is the day he will set you free from all of your fears. 19th century Scottish minister and author Oswald Chambers once said, I have to get to the point of the absolute and unquestionable relationship that takes everything as exactly as it comes from Him. God never guides us at some time in the future, but always here and now. Realize that the Lord is here now, and the freedom you receive is immediate. Okay? When you are in Christ Jesus... Every single thing in this world that exists to enslave you and keep you from becoming all that God created you to be, you are set free from all of that already. Every single bit of it. So it's not that, that God hasn't done enough in your life yet, you understand, for you to truly be free from fear and sin and doubt. No, 
you're not waiting for him to complete something inside of you so that you can finally be free from whatever it is holding you captive today. Now, because the prisons we live in, we build around ourselves. And so when it comes to finding freedom in your life, it boils down to decisions that you have to make for yourself. Because look, as far as God is concerned, he's already set you free. It's you that has to decide. Am I going to get into the fight? Because there's no freedom without a fight. Am I going to forsake the sin that I keep returning to knowing there's no freedom to ever be found outside of God's will? And Am I going to stop living in fear of things that haven't even happened yet knowing that God is working in my life today so there's no reason to fear tomorrow? That's the thing about finding freedom. For the Christian, the prisons we so often live in cannot hold us. We're only there to begin with because we choose to be. So listen, whether it's fear or sin or doubt, whatever is holding you back today from the life you know you were created to live, freedom is yours for the taking. Jesus gave his life for it, which means all that's left is for you to choose to be free. Let's pray.